Section 13 of On the Witness Stand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Julie Yu, On the Witness Stand. Essays on Psychology and Crime by Hugo Munsterberg. Untrue Confessions Part 3. The untrustworthiness of memory under all such conditions have nothing whatever to do with the intentions and the veracity of the witness. The average man knows, anyhow, very little of the working of his own mind, and his particular variations escape his attention. It is well known how many persons do not know even that they are colorblind, or that they lack elements of imagination which are natural to others. A colleague once wanted me to hypnotize him because he had just, in his 40th year, discovered that he had no power of optical remembering. He hoped to get it through hypnosis and yet he had never missed it until he read of it in a psychological book. And only the other day I was consulted by a young woman who, up to her college days, had not discovered that other persons do not hear voices when they are alone. She had heard them since childhood days and had felt sure that it was everybody's experience. The average person is unfamiliar with his psychical peculiarities and with the varieties and trickeries of his memory. They do not concern the physician either. But the psychological examination finishes indeed today a kind of mental Rohangan rates which illumine the internal happenings. We must not forget, moreover, that our knowledge of our own personality and its doing is also a function of memory. We know of ourselves in a psychological sense through the connected memory of our actions and of our experiences, and this reproducing self-consciousness is open to all the chances and defects which belong to our remembering in other fields. Our own doings, of which we know, perhaps, through our muscle sensations, are in themselves no better material for our reproduction in memory than the scenes which we have seen and the words which we have heard. As soon as the memory for our own past is completely lost, the pathological character is, of course, evident. And if the ideas which form ourselves become dissociated and groups become split off as a second or third personality in us, no one doubts that such curious formations belong to the physician's domain. Yet here again, we can reach the most hopeless forms through small steps from the experiences of our daily life. Every one of us is a different personality under different circumstances. The man in the office is not the man in family life, on his vacation trip, not the same as at work, in the political meeting, 
not the same as in the theater. New leading impulses, new groups of memory associations, new groups of feelings enter each time into play and change the whole aspect of our life. To be sure, the core of our personality is not touched by such daily occurrences and we can easily bridge over in our mind from the one state to the other. Just for this reason, it does not interfere with the purposes of healthy action. But this growing up of a new personality with its own impulses and separated by its own memories from our regular life may again increase just like those other variations of memory. An emotional shock or a captivating impression may stir up long-forgotten memory ideas or push imaginative thoughts into the center and build around them split-off pieces of a dissociated mind into a new personality which can be, perhaps, hardly discriminated from the previous self, but in which important emotions and memories may be distorted. And this alteration may affect more and more the deeper layers of emotional thought and the whole man may be for a long time a new man before the outside becomes aware of it or before he himself can explain the sudden changes in his attitudes and in his actions, in his judgments and his self-consciousness. The borderland region between the normal variations of personality and the complete pathological destruction of the self demands us the most earnest consideration in the courtroom. And now I return to the distressing case of Chicago. Dr. Christensen has set forth the entire murder case in a brilliant pamphlet which Phil will study without becoming convinced that an innocent man has suffered death by the rope on account of untrue confessions. It may be sufficient here to cite from it the following facts. On January 12, 1906, a young married woman was brutally outraged and murdered in Chicago. Her body was found by the unfortunate defendant lying face downwards on a manure pile in a barnyard. The barn was about half a block distant from his home. He had to go there to attend to his father's horse. When he observed the body, he at once reported the matter to his father at the house, and the father notified the police. The officers who inspected the premises found the woman's head at her feet, but could discover no evidence whatsoever of a scuffle having taken place. Purse, shopping bag, and muff were gone. Around her neck was a hard-drawn copper wire, the ends being twisted together. The young man looked as if he had not slept during the night, and the officers suspected him. The testimonies show that the young man was everywhere regarded as a thoughtful, obliging fellow of exceptionally good disposition.
Beethoven exhibiting marked stupidity. He never sought the company of women. All of his friends thought him decidedly trusting, and credulous and absent-minded. He alternated between gay and morose moods. His most pronounced defect seemed to them his lack of initiative. His regular work was with his father at the trade of a carpenter. When he came to the police station, he was told at once that he was the guilty man, but the accused denied everything. Now the police began to press him, and to suggest more and more impressively to him his guilt. Suddenly he began to confess, and he was quite willing to repeat his confession again and again. Every time it became richer in detail. At about six thirty, I took her in the alley. I wrestled with her and lost my senses. She wanted to run, and so on and so on. On this basis, he was condemned to death. So the matter stood when my opinion was asked for, as above reported. I could not help becoming convinced that all the external signs spoke against the interpretation of the jury. The young man's alibi proof, brought forward by his friends, seemed to me convincing. Everything seemed to point to the fact that the woman was murdered by an unknown person at another place, and that her body was dragged during the night by the copper wire coiled around her neck from another street to the barnyard. The so-called confessions themselves seemed absurd and contradictory. And exactly like the involuntary elaboration of a suggestion put into the man's mind, his whole life history and the expression of his face were in fullest accordance with the suspicion that his mind was in a state of dissociation when he began his confessions. It seemed to me a typical case of that. Large borderland region in which a neurotic mind develops an illusory memory as to its own doings in the past. After most careful scrutiny, as far as the written and printed material allowed, I wrote thus in June, in my much abused letter, that the confessions must be untrue. And that the condemned man had really nothing to do with the crime. I added at once, "It is an interesting case of dissociation and autosuggestion. It would need probably careful treatment to build up his dissociated mind again, and thus to awake in him a clear memory of his real experiences." But when I expressed thus my firm conviction. I had, nevertheless, the uncanny feeling that there was something obscure in the case. I was unable to understand how the sudden change from denial to confession was brought about. To be sure, there were the sharp, inquisitory questions of the police officers, and yet, from a rather extended experience, I could not imagine that 
without a sudden external shock or some overwhelming fascination, such a conversion and such a disintegration could set in. Only a short time before, a lady had come to me who showed quite similar blanks of memory for several days, filling the gap with imaginative ideas. And she too did not understand why her personality had been changed so suddenly. But when I hypnotized her, I understood what had happened. She had been in a nervous and overfatigued state when her own physician bent over her and the sharp sunlight reflected from his eyeglasses struck her eyes. At that moment, she felt it like a shock. His eyeglasses seemed to become large and uncanny, and from that moment on her consciousness was split, and her remaining half-personality developed a pseudo-memory of his own. I had before my mind, also, the case of a certain religious conversion which Dr. Prince has recently analysed and described. It was the case of a young woman who, from a most distressed, restless and suffering state, was suddenly completely changed to a state of joyful excitement and happy ecstasy. She felt it as a spiritual conversion to health, and the complete change of her mental personality was indeed most surprising. She could not remember that anything had happened which might have influenced her. But when the physician hypnotized her in the interest of her ailments, everything became clear. She had gone to church in a condition of hopeless despair. The church was empty, and as she communed with herself, her hopelessness deepened. Then her eyes became fixed upon one of the shining brass lamps in the church. And, of a sudden, all was changed. She went into a trance-like state in which many disconnected memories of her early life and of happy times rushed to her consciousness, each accompanied by emotion, and these long-forgotten emotions of happiness persisted. If there had been anything of such optical captivation of attention, like the reflex of the eyeglass or the shining of the brass lamp in the Chicago case, everything would have been completely clear to me. Without such fascinating stimulus, I could not account sufficiently for the suddenness of the change in the defendant's personality. When I wrote my letter, I felt certain that if I had had a chance to hypnotize the condemned man, I should have found out that some unexpected stimulus must have come in, must have snapped off the normal connections. I expressed this as my wish at that time, repeatedly. I could not foresee that all the explanation I was looking for would be furnished only a few days later, by nature herself. The unfortunate youth awoke suddenly from the awful spell. The period of disintegration was suddenly again eliminated from the memory, 
and the normal connections entered again into play. The same paper, which had insisted that the defendant must be the murderer, because no innocent man would ever confess such a brutal crime, brought out a few days later a long report which began as follows. With death on the gallows only six days away, he asserts his innocence of the atrocious murder. He declares he has absolutely no memory of having made to the police a confession. He asserts that his only recollection of the coroner's inquest is that of seeing a revolver pointed at him. He said, I saw the flash of steel in front of me. Then two men got before me. I can remember no more than that about it. Someone told me afterward who the man was, but I had not seen him at all. And I don't recall seeing any other man even until after I had seen the revolver. I suppose I must have made those statements since they all say I did, but I have no knowledge of having made them. And I am innocent of that crime. From the time that I was arrested, I do not believe that I was myself for a moment until after I was over here in the jail. Everything about that time is a blur, a blank to me. I can see through this blur the time in the station when the police would bring me up every little while and tell me that I had done it. I know that the very first thing that the inspector said to me when I was brought to him was, you did this. I did not do it. And I knew that I did not. But I do not know what I said or did during that time in the station. I wondered why a revolver should be pointed at me and so forth. It would be absurd to fancy that this last turn of his mind was a made-up story to escape punishment. Through all those weeks of his half-dazed condition, he had never made the least effort to weaken his so-called confessions or to protect himself in any way. Moreover, this stupid boy would be the last to be able to invent suddenly a long story which fits so exactly in every detail the clinical experiences of the nervous physician and the mental experiences of the psychologist. I saw the flash of steel in front of me, and from that moment, everything became a blur and a blank. It was the one missing link in the chain of evidence of his innocence. He cannot even have understood that this flash of steel worked like the shining brass lamp in Dr. Prince's case or the reflecting eyeglass in that other case. He naively reported the whole truth, and with all the earmarks of truth, he would have been absolutely unable to fabricate by his own efforts such scientifically exact observations. What resulted when he began to fabricate out of his own faculties was sufficiently shown in his confessions 
a contradictory mixture of improbable and psychologically impossible occurrences. Six days later, the punishment of death was executed. End of section 13.